If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Today, California is renowned worldwide as a heartland of sun-drenched luxury. But according to a new book by Jean Felser, the state's prosperity is in large part built on the proceeds of human bondage. I spoke to Jean about the various forms that slavery has taken in the state down the centuries. From Native Americans forced into indentured labour, to Chinese girls trafficked into cage brothels. Thank you so much for joining me, Jean. You say in the introduction to your book that, quote, the story of California is a history of 250 years of uninterrupted human bondage. What forms has that bondage taken? I turn to Frederick Douglass, the great American abolitionist. Douglass says that slavery is a hydra, and if you cut off one head, two heads grow in its place. And this hydra, this serpent, slithered across California's history, and it created a series of forms of slavery, really depending on power, 
who was in power, who was running California, who owned California at the time. California has this free-spirited aura, but in fact it was a colony. And it was a colony first of Spain, then a colony of Russia, then a colony of Mexico, and then, in my view, a colony of the United States. And it absorbed, like a sponge, the various forms of slavery that were being evolved in each of these places. And I think it's important to say at the start of this conversation how you define slavery. So we're not just talking here about the transatlantic slave trade and plantation slavery. We're talking about indentured labor and sex trafficking. Could you give us your definition of slavery? Slavery in California was very unique, but it also has a lot of overlays with global slavery and the way slavery evolved in the British colonies and in the South, in the United States, and then how it spread into the North in the United States. I think people are coming to understand more and more that it wasn't contained. It wasn't boxed in in the South. It leaked. And as it leaked, it morphed into these different forms. Let's start with the commonalities. Slavery is always violent. It is always violent. And at a certain level, it's always what we call chattel slavery, which means that a human being can be owned, is owned, and can be bought and can be sold and does not own their own body. In common, what that means that one who is enslaved can't choose where they work They can't quit. They can't go somewhere else. They can't negotiate for a better wage. And most important, and in particularly harshest for women, is that an enslaved person doesn't own their own body. And they don't own their own sexual body or reproductive body. In various ways, different forces of power always make slavery legal. It seeps into the law that this is never done outside of the legalities. And if it isn't formally legalized, then it's tolerated. Sometimes it's even funded because leading to the next aspect of slavery, it makes a lot of money. And the reason for it is profit, profit made out of labor that's not paid, So that's the next part of the story, is that people are not paid for their work or they're not paid for control of their body. Their labor is forced. Every part of your being, if you're enslaved, is controlled by someone else. And what really struck me in writing this book is how many children are enslaved, that they can be enslaved from birth, and used. Tiny children can be labored. They can be assaulted. So that's another aspect of it. What I found that was really important is that also slavery always involves resistance. There is not one instance of slavery in California where the enslaved didn't fight back. So we're talking about a really wide range 
of experiences here over this 250 year period that you look at. But in that period, who were some of the people that were enslaved in California? It moves sequentially, step by step, chronologically. The first people who were enslaved were California Native Americans, and they are the indigenous people, or some places they're called the first people. In California and in the U.S. more, they're called Native Americans, Indians. So the Indians, the Native Californians, were the first people who were enslaved by the Spanish. And they invade from Mexico. They had a long tradition of slavery in the silver mines, in Peru, in Mexico, in agriculture. And they come in, and it's brutal. And they have the side story that they're carrying a papal bull, an assignment from Rome to also convert 300,000 native Californians to Catholicism. Mainly what Spain wanted to do was extend its empire in South and Latin America into California. They had no idea that there was gold in California, that it was this fertile, fecund state. They wanted territory and they wanted the Native Americans. The second group, the next group to come in, are coming down from the north. If Spain is coming up from the south, Russia is coming down from the north with captive Alaska natives for the otter trade. They're going to set up another slave triangle from Alaska, California, to China. And China was the only and big purchaser of the otters. If you think of those old pictures of mandarins with these fluffy fur collars, those are otters from California that they're wearing. The next group to be enslaved were African Americans. After the gold rush in California, plantation owners, southern slaveholders, march their enslaved people 2,000 miles, marched across the plains to California, or they transported them down to Panama. There was no Panama Canal yet. And they crossed through the jungles of Panama with enslaved people. And then on the other side of the jungles um, are ships and thousands of people waiting to go up north to San Francisco to join the gold rush. So those are the first three sets. The next set, well over 90, 95% of the settlers into California are men. And they want women, they want sex, they want domestic help, they want cooks. And Chinese girls are kidnapped from the port cities of China, of Guangdong, and shipped to California And very much like our visions of the African slave trade, they're sold at the docks in San Francisco. They're stripped, they're inspected, they're auctioned, and they're bought. And they're sold into brothels in San Francisco. So they are the next group of enslaved people. And actually, at the same time, the first law that California passes after it becomes a state, 
is called the Act for the Government and Protection of the Indian. And that legalizes the forced indenture of California Native Americans. That's happening at the same time as the genocide to clear the land of Indians for farmers and for ranchers. And the law is that anyone who is a vagrant, who is running from the genocide, is available to be sold. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will jump in there, actually. So there, those are some very key examples, and, and you share more examples in your book than this. You've got a huge range of people and experiences here, you know, whether we're talking about Chinese women brought over and forced to work in brothels or Native Americans raised in industrial schools designed to, in quote marks, Americanize them, or African Americans, as you say, brought over as enslaved workers. With all those different experiences, why do you think it's useful to to look at them all together? What comparisons or what similarities can you draw out from that? I think the discovery for me as a Californian, and I was born in Los Angeles, grew up in California, was that the state was born from slavery, that it thrived, it grew, it prospered, it expanded through slavery, that this was never the free-spirited, happy, hippie, rebel soul state of people's fantasy, of its utopian brand. 
that wasn't the state. What's important is for us to understand how in this day and age, where we're aware of human trafficking now, that this has a long history and traditions and recipes on how to do it. California entered the Union only technically a free state, and it never was. So if we look at the situation of immigrants now, it's important to understand the loss of freedom from the get-go. And if we look at race now, we need to understand that there was a lack of freedom, an imposition, a loss of liberty right from the start. It's very current. I wonder if you could just give us a bit more context on the changing legal status of slavery and enslavement in California. When technically was slavery abolished? And and after that, how did it find new ways to justify its existence? To join the United States, every state has to have a constitution, a state constitution. And the rule was that a state would enter the United States equally. A free state, a slave state, would be paired. There was no state to enter to be paired with California. It writes its constitution and it says slavery will never be tolerated in California. So technically it's banished, but in fact it's not because tolerated is not a legal standard. So the Constitution was written by 44 um, white people and eight Latino people, all men, and most of the white people, with one main exception, were slaveholders from the South. And they had crossed the plains intending to profit and to bring slaves with them. And they write the Constitution and they deliberately give themselves an out by calling it tolerated. This question that you you mentioned there of profit is an important one because, of course, the motivation for much of this enslavement was profit. What can you tell us about how enslaved labour in particular fueled California and allowed it to become the, the prosperous state that it is today? Yeah, and getting back, it's an important question, and getting back to the issue of profit and law were always twinned. They were married. The very, very first law that California passes is called the Act for the Government and the Protection of the Indian. And that was the law that legalized the forced indenture of Native Americans. And California didn't have a labor force. There were 250 tribes in California who lived in harmony with the land. And what people needed, if it was going to prosper as a mining state, an agricultural state, a ranching state, were workers, worker bees, and they didn't exist. And so this enslaved workforce had to be imported or created and legalized. You mentioned earlier that all of these forms of bondage were at points resisted and fought against. Can you give us some examples? It starts right away with down at the missions. What I didn't know is that there was coordinated slave revolts at the missions and Native Americans fled 
And they burned down the missions. They slaughtered the Spanish soldiers. They slaughtered the priests who were abusing them. Both the soldiers and the priests had traditions of going into the women's dormitory and picking out women nightly to rape. And the Native Americans were enraged. There was no tradition of rape in California Native Americans. And so the first slave revolt was within two or three years where they burned down the mission in San Diego. The Chinese girls who were held in brothels fled, and the Native Americans fought back with arms and weapons, and they stole the horses from the Spanish. The Alaska Natives who were brought down with their kayaks, their skin kayaks, just paddled up the rivers and left. And now we have traditions of people trapped in human trafficking who have learned how to make the phone call, to dial 911, to flee. At San Quentin Prison, which was based on convict labor, brutal, tortured convict labor, there were wild strikes and one strike of a thousand convicts that very much preceded the famous prison strike at Attica Prison that we all know of. But it happened first at San Quentin a hundred years before that. So enslaved people always fought back. So it's a very bleak picture and many of the episodes that you're looking at here are incredibly dark. But throughout you've got some really moving personal stories in your book. I wonder if you could share a couple that you found the most affecting. The story that I start the book with is of a 10-year-old Indian girl. She was Wailaki, and she was on the run with her mother and her sister from the genocide. And this little girl is sold from the forts and from the military forts and later from the reservations. And she's carried, thrown over the back of a horse and sold over and over again to ranchers. And each time she runs away to find her mom. And she finds her way 80 miles through the Redwood Forest to find her family. And she survives. And when she's 91 years old, in the 1930s, she says her story has to be told. She says, white people need to know this story. This is history. This is truth. But it's stories like her name was, it's very guttural. Her name was Zixa. And Zixa's story lives with me. And it made me feel that this was actually, in a bizarre way, a very hopeful book, that no matter what is imposed on people, they will fight back and they will find their freedom and their community. I think I found some of the most moving elements in your book. You've got some incredible pictures in there. There are some pictures of um, Native American people who who were sent against their will to industrial schools to essentially have their cultural heritage stripped away. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about those boarding schools, because it wasn't an episode of history that I was very familiar with myself. This history is 
incredibly important both in Canada and in the United States. Canada has had a very powerful Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Indian boarding schools were really imposed to create a white Christian Protestant ideology. And when you were seized and taken to the boarding schools, often families hid their children. They hid little children in redwood logs. They hid them in the bushes when the recruiters came to take the children to these boarding schools. I didn't know that there were Indian boarding schools in California till I got into writing this book. There were 12. And they were all over Canada. They were all over Alaska. They were much more common than we knew. And it was to try to turn Native Americans into white Christians. So day one in the boarding school, you were stripped. You lost your Native clothing. You weren't allowed to speak your Native language. You weren't allowed to talk to your siblings. You learned to eat white food. And what I didn't know is that there were these programs called outing programs. And they had outing matrons. And they were slave plantations. All of these children were sent out to work unpaid. The girls were sent to work in the new hotels or to be domestic servants. The boys were sent to work in the orange groves. And they were shipped all over the country. They were sent from California to Nebraska to dig in the beet fields of Nebraska. And so it was both free labor and the idea that unpaid labor would make you into a good white Christian. So the theology is overlaid with the profit of these children. There are many other episodes in your book, I think, that would surprise people to learn about. Um, I wonder if there are any others that you, you think should be more well-known. One is, I never knew that there were plantation slaves brought to California. This book disrupts the North-South vision of slavery in the United States. It breaks that map. And as we understand more and more how slavery seeped into the North, we haven't at all talked about how slavery traveled West. I think white people think of Chinatown as a tourist area, a place to eat incredible food and to buy trinkets. San Francisco's Chinatown was destroyed in the 1906 massive San Francisco earthquake. It was rebuilt to look like the Forbidden City in Beijing with the sloped roofs and the gates. And it was built to attract a tourist economy. And what I didn't know is that there were girls in caged brothels lining the streets of San Francisco, literally behind iron wire cages. They would solicit a man and the curtain would be drawn. She would service the man. And then her owner, who was often a merchant's wife, would take the money and open the curtain and she would solicit another man. And the records are that she serviced up to 20 men a day. The slaveholders bought off the police and I am in awe 
of the Chinese girls who ran away. A few ran to the missions in San Francisco, where I am now in these little rural towns. There were tiny Chinatowns all across California, and the women in these Chinatowns were often these runaway girls. I guess that's a good example of my next question for you, which is how we can still see the legacy of all of this in California today. The legacy today is in two forms. One is in the carceral state, in the prisons, the unpaid labor in the prisons, which endures today. And it's making a great deal of profit in the clothing trade, in T-shirts, in uniforms, in furniture, in license plates. And the other is in human trafficking. In the world of human trafficking, there's both labor trafficking and sex trafficking. I view sex trafficking as also labor trafficking. So I see modern human trafficking in the marijuana grows, in the garment industry, in the fields, in sweatshops, mainly in the hotel industry, the maids who change our sheets in the hotels, many of whom are trafficked. So there is a very long thread that takes us right to the the now of unfree labor. So this is clearly not an issue that is resolved or dealt with. But how do you think that California is today at dealing with this historical legacy um, and this difficult history? Do you think that the state addresses those issues well? I think that there is a really important movement that's bubbling up in the state. And this is the demand for reparations. There's a huge African-American reparations commission And there's also a Native American Reparations Commission. Um, This isn't just to honor the history of the past, that the only reparations really is money. Different groups want different things. Um, Native Americans want land. Their land was seized. I found that almost 50%, 48%, of usable land in California is unoccupied. So it won't be the same land, but there is land to return to the tribes. So the demand for land, and then there's the the shadow of slavery that has affected housing, employment, education, health care, as well as poverty, really deeply affecting people's lives. And so the demands for reparations are for money, for land, for services. So there are many ways to recompense, to pay back, and to give justice. The definition, my definition of reparations is justice that repairs. And I think these commissions are starting the work of repair of healing. And for anybody who thinks, you know, most of these things are in the past, we should leave them in the past and and look forward to a brighter future. Why would you say it's important to talk about this history, to deal with this history and to address it? Well, I believe in the power of truth. 
I think that um, we won't have a fairer and juster, a more just world unless we know the truth. I don't think these are just stories. I think they're legacies that shape who we all are today. But I also believe that if we take these apart issue by issue and start to address them, that we can change the world we live in as we understand where they came from. But also, we have models of social change in what I call these slave revolts, in the demands that were made for wages, for freedom, for sexual safety. And it isn't just learning qua learning. We have a lot from our ancestors that we can copy. The Japanese Americans who were kept in concentration camps or internment camps during World War II were given $20,000 each in the 1980s. We have a tradition of writing the checks that deliver economic justice. And right now, this year, for the first time, California is tallying up what it would cost to pay the descendants of the enslaved, of the African-American enslaved, they've come up with a figure of $8 billion. That's almost California's annual budget. And so people are having to think creatively, how do we pay back to bring people into economic education, health, food, clean food, clean water, equity, And so I think the discussion of slavery takes us right to the present of how do we make a more beautiful and safe world. That was Jean Felzer, professor of American studies at the University of Delaware. Her book, California, A Slave State, is available now, published by Yale. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.